Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Healing Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Julianne. In season two, we're doing something a little different. We're interviewing some members of a group of CAJ alumni who are working on bringing to light abuse that occurred some decades ago at CAJ. In a content warning, we will be discussing various types of abuse experienced by children in these episodes. Here's a quote from a 2019 statement from the CAJ Concerned Alumni Committee. On February 6, 2019, a steering committee representing concerned alumni sent a letter to CAJ and its six founding missions. Send, resonate global mission, serve globally, team, world venture, and OMS, calling for resolution of an alleged history of sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that occurred at the school, as well as in its dorms and hostels. They asked for an investigation into the alleged abuse via a reputable, independent, and mutually agreed-upon agency. We will be hearing from survivors and supporters about where this investigation is at today, what we can expect from it, and how they've been building a community focused on truth-telling and healing. If you'd like to learn more about the investigation or context surrounding it, we have more information available on our website at RadicalHealingPod.com. Welcome back to Radical Healing. It's Julianne and Erica, and we're here to talk about the documentary All God's Children. We're talking about this documentary, which is about Mamu Academy in Guinea, which uh, is the first boarding school for children of Protestant missionaries to be publicly investigated for child abuse. It tells the stories of the founding members of, a, of the nonprofit Missionary Kid Safety Net, MK Safety Net. Uh, so yeah, we'll be diving into it. Uh, we wanted to talk about this documentary because uh, it's important as the first missionary school to be investigated and it provides some context for a better understanding what the situation was and is with the CAJ uh, abuse investigation. And it uh, served kind of as a inspiration or model for the abuse survivors at CAJ and how to proceed in bringing justice and bringing truth to light about what happened there. And so, yeah, we want, Erica and I wanted to watch it and just unpack and digest together about this important story. Yeah, I had heard multiple uh, CAJ alumni mention this documentary specifically and just the case of the school as being really important. And actually, I was kind of sad to realize when I watched the documentary because I had heard about it as like a success Um, And I think that they meant that the investigation was successful. You know, they were able to get someone to investigate the abuse and document evidence. And, you know, now they have this, there's a report that you can read online. I thought that it was also successful in actually getting the broader organization to address harms. But I realized, no, that was not true. The Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is the mission organization, you know, that founded the school and employed all the people there, 
they did apologize. They made an apology, and that seems to be basically it. They now there were a few people who you know who were abusers at the school who then were removed from their positions uh, within the Christian Missionary Alliance organization. I think they were working in like some churches. And so I, yeah, I guess that happened, but not much else. Yeah. They were stripped of their credentials. Right. Yeah. But, but also you find out that CMNA, they sent letters. So after this came out at some point, they sent letters to the staff of the school, like apologizing for, Uh, this investigation and basically telling them like, Oh, we know that you didn't do anything wrong. I don't know the details, but there was mentioned. Do you remember that Juju? Yeah. They were like, sorry for the embarrassment. Yeah. 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 Sorry for like emotional burden of having to be accused of abuse. We know you didn't do anything bad. So that's, uh, that was really disappointing for me to, Realized as I was watching the documentary, but it was, of course, it's something to be celebrated that this was a case where survivors, alumni were able to come together and create this, you know, organized group. They supported each other. They created the steering committee to get the investigation going. And I, it seems like you know, some of them sort of continue to, I guess, support each other in different ways. Again, you don't know a whole lot. And it was recorded. When was the documentary recorded? It is 2008. Okay. Yeah, because one of the notes that I wrote down was that there have been 21 Christian missionary boarding schools that there have been like reports of abuse there. And then out of, uh, as of 2008, out of those 21, two schools have been actually investigated. Their organizations, the, you know, Christian organizations actually investigated the reports of abuse. And that was the Presbyterian church, uh, USA and the United Methodist church. So it seems like Mamo was the first. And then there, as of 2008, there were two other schools that where the organizations actually got involved in investigating allegations of abuse. I'd be curious to see now how many schools have investigated abuse. That would be an interesting number to find. I wonder if anyone knows that. I would imagine it's more but considering how difficult it was to get the organizations to agree to do a formal investigation maybe not a whole lot yeah and it was definitely really really hard for the Mamo alumni to get the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance to agree to the investigation it seems like yeah So, yeah, that's one thing to consider. 
but yeah, it's just, it seems like it's very significant in general, just like, you know, now people are investigating abuse and taking abuse seriously. And there are more opportunities for survivors of abuse to speak out, but specifically for the CAJ alumni group, I think this was really beneficial. And MK Safety Net as a whole, which MK Safety Net as a group came out of the MAMO alumni group because they wanted to help other, I think, missionary kids specifically be able to report any abuse that they experienced. Um, That was a really interesting part at the end where they explained, you know, they created MK Safety Net as a way to advise MKs on how to report abuse. Um, They said, you know, they, they can give that kind of strategic support, but they said that each group is different. And there's no one set way to do it because each group maybe has their own goals, like what they want to to get out of it. So everyone figures out for the, you know, they have to figure out for themselves um, what exactly they want to do, which in general is just like a good strategy. Anytime that you're supporting someone who, you know, is in whether they've been abused in any way, you know, uh, you don't want to tell them well, this is what you have to do. Like you want to help them figure out, okay, what do you want to do? Maybe these are some of your options. Which of these options would you like to, you know, do? Yeah. Um, Any other context that we wanted to provide? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to watch this because I'm, I was curious to learn more about the culture of missionaries and missionary families in this time period, which is like the 50s to the 70s, um, which is before our time. And you know, a lot has changed since then. There is a lot that hasn't changed, I'm sure. But I was curious to learn more about this time period and the culture, especially when it came to viewing how, how missionary organizations viewed children. Mm. Uh, I think that's really interesting. The documentary stresses the way that children were almost like a distraction in the face of missionary work, like Mm -hmm. for missionaries, sending them to boarding schools was a given. It was like, like, and that, that was kind of like the ultimate sacrifice that showed how loyal you were to God and the gospel, which, which feels very toxic now for us in our generation, but that seemed to be the norm then. And I'm sure it still affects today, mission organizations and missionary families today. Um, So yeah, just wanting to think more about children, how children are valued. Hmm. Maybe we can talk about this more later, but did you read the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver? Yeah, I did. In high school. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I was not at all surprised surprised by you know like what you were saying kind of like missions during that time Mm. like it seemed like it fit with what I already have a picture of of missions during that time were you surprised by anything Mm. I I think I I knew like this was the given like 
missionaries were expected to give up their kids and send them to boarding schools. But I wanted to delve deeper into that mm. and like the nuances of what that was, what that actually felt like for kids and for the parents too. Um, just trying to understand like how could how could parents do this? Mm. I mean, one thing I guess that surprised me was like realizing how disconnected the kids were from what the parents were doing because they basically yeah just had like fully separate lives I don't know exactly what the kids would have been doing in the summer uh, because they were in school for nine months and then they would go to their back to their parents for like three months right Um, but it did seem like uh, the kids being at the school, it was very much that that cultural, what do you call it, bubble, I guess, yeah. where it seemed like the only Africans they would have interacted with were like servants. Mm-hmm. Like they mentioned in the documentary, like, oh, you know, when that terrible dentist nurse was like doing stuff to kids, she would strap them down or get an African to hold them down. Um, and I, that was one thing that I wondered about, like how much interaction the kids had with like any Africans outside of like a servant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What a weird microcosm. Yeah. I mean, just the world of evangelical missions is just so weird. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's the, you know, it's the type of racism that's like, uh, what do you call it? benevolent racism of like, mm. I'm here to save you, you know, mm. it was like a trendy thing to be a missionary in Africa. But then it's like, when you went back to the U S what was your perspective on African-Americans in the U S you know, mm. I'm sure it was the same people who were supporting segregation and stuff this time mm. in forties and fifties and sixties. It's just such a weird thing to be like, yeah, I'm going to evangelize to you, but also like burn your houses down. Yeah. I don't know. Not that it's the same group of people. No, I mean, but it is interesting to think about like that time in history too, as 100%. This is the time period when Billy Graham was like, okay, you don't want me to have integrated services. Sure, I'll preach to a whites only Secretary. service, yeah. you know, yeah. like yeah. later on, he it was must like, have been, well, yeah, he, later on, can, he was like, change, okay, but... sure. I'll integrate. But at the beginning he wouldn't, yeah. but it's like, yeah. weren't the missionaries technically having integrated church service? Cause they had like white people and black people in the same building. I don't yeah, know, but it's different too. Right. Like the, there's like, right. even though it's like, integrated air quotes there's the power dynamic of course oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah the missionary power dynamic yeah i wonder if the missionaries just like envisioned africans and african-americans as just totally different you know like not at all the same group yeah i mean the point of missionaries going to overseas countries is they're spreading the gospel to people who haven't been exposed to it Mm um so yeah that's like the the black and white categories well 
<laughs> Other <laughs> definition of black and white categories. Yeah. 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 And that was like a, also an interesting thing hearing people talk about like the importance of evangelizing. Yeah. Like it, it seems so like some MK. I, I, yeah. I just wanted to like ask the MKs, like, do you think it was important that they evangelize? Because to like, mm. to me, this evangelizing is like fundamentally unethical, right? Mm. Like mm. to me, it's like morally wrong for these white Americans to go to, I mean, basically anywhere and say your way of life is bad and you're going to hell and you need to think and act and talk like me so i'm i'm curious i guess uh now for these mks like what they think of that yeah like even if they are still christian or not yeah i remember one one of this abuse that the survivors the missionary kids was saying it would be possible to build a church without all these sacrifices you made yeah right like you were saying like this was completely unnecessary like you can do missionary work and do your evangelism without yeah yeah, sacrificing your children yeah and someone else um made a point about like oh now there's like a big thriving church in mali but your own children are not Christian or like your own children had to go through this. And it seemed like, you know, at least to the, the, the missionaries, the parents at the time, like that was like, that was their accomplishment that they could look back on. Oh, Mm. now there's all these Christian evangelical churches in Mali. That was just one example. Uh, I, I couldn't tell what, the missionary kids thought of that yeah i'm sure there's varied opinions and w- one guy actually became a minister which mm-hmm. was but he was the one who said that you know i became a minister because i want to promote good religion instead of bad religion right yeah, yeah which yeah. i'm curious also what exactly did he mean by that yeah this is a completely side note, but I noticed in the clip of him, uh, like going up to the front of the church and there was like a tapestry, like one of those church tapestries. Mm-hmm. And there was a like embroidery of white Jesus, like a <laughs> white Jesus head. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> hmm. Oh, I remember one quote. I, I took a note of this. Um, this, the MBK, David Dar. He spoke about asking his mother, how many African souls were worth my souls? A hundred, a thousand souls. Mm. Um, So really. And I can see someone asking that in a way that you don't actually believe, you know, that like souls are a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he did. Stressing. Yeah. we, We don't know, but yeah. Like stressing, like how much damage was brought to like the spiritual lives of your own children and just this that this weird tension of wanting to save other people at the cost of sacrificing your own children yeah 
which I think I assume the overall assumption was like, if you are in a Christian environment, that's the best thing I could do for you. Right. So because they're in a Christian school, of course, they're going to have like a good Christian faith. Okay. Should we take a step back and yeah. We got to do some sort of summary. Summary. Yeah. (laughs) Not too much, but at least some. I actually, so I have the investigation report that was published, pulled up, and it just has some basic uh, stats on the school. So it was uh, Mamo Alliance Academy operated from the 1920s through 1971. And it seemed like uh, from the documentary, it only closed because another school was opened fairly nearby and people just started going to that school. So it wasn't like it was like shut down. It was like, I think it was just like less and less people went there until it finally closed. Yeah. It Um, used to be the only school for West Africa, but then another school opened up in the Ivory Coast. Right. Yeah. So more conflict in Guinea. So more people moving to the other school. Yeah. It was in Guinea, but the parents would have been in multiple different countries in the area. And I also, I had to look it up because I was curious. Uh, So Guinea got its independence in 1958. And I was kind of just like wondering a lot of countries around there at this time were getting independence. And a lot of them, they were allying with the USSR. They were socialist countries, you know, they were pan-Africanist like leadership. So I wondered like, how can you have a Christian boarding school? But maybe because they were in such rural areas, you know, it didn't really affect them that much. Mm. Because Mali, yeah, Mali got its independence in 1960. I think other countries around there, you know, they were all getting their independence around that time. But it was just such a very rural area. Maybe they were allowed to just keep going, even even as the countries gain their independence. Mm. Um, yeah. And so there's this boarding school. It's in a very rural area. It seems like also the parents seemed like they were also working in rural areas. They really emphasized how it would be days long trips to get to the school, like dangerous trips. They had to like cross rivers and stuff and the roads were not, you know, they were like mud roads and, and they, There was no choice if you were a missionary in West Africa at that time, once your child reached a certain age, which was, I think, around six, although there were some people who were sent to school even before they turned six years old. Uh, You had to send your kid to the school um, and they had to stay there for nine months. And it seemed like in general, you could not go visit them at any point. I think sometimes there were some situations where parents could go visit, but in general you had to send them and they stayed there for nine months. And um, they, they had one sort of like healthcare provider seems like who was the overall nurse and dentist. One of the people who was in that position was a notorious abuser who seemed like 
tortured students, basically. It was like just like a very strict place. Uh, it just like really harsh discipline, really tight control, and like just children beaten all the time, it seems like, for little things or even probably for nothing at all. Like people would be roaming the halls with their belts, you know, ready to beat anyone. Um, siblings and were siblings. discouraged from helping mm-hmm. each other. Yeah, and it seemed like there was sort of at least uh, children were allowed or maybe even encouraged to bully each other. It seemed like there was a lot of that. In the example of all the adults around them, it's kind of right. They learned to bully each other from the adults. Um, So it just seemed like it was a really violent environment. The kids wrote weekly letters to their parents, but they could not mention anything negative in the letter or they would have to rewrite it and also they were like common thing for boarding schools it seems like oh really yeah i was i was reading um, like censored letters yeah i was reading this was like a posh british boarding boys boarding school this guy was talking about his experience there of being abused there and yeah exactly same thing Mm -hmm. of not being able to write honestly to your parents that makes sense and then also they mentioned like you're not allowed to express any like sadness or homesickness or like missing your family specifically because they're missionaries and god wants them to be doing this and so like that definitely stood out to me like in any occasion whether writing a letter or not you could not express that you were like sad or homesick yeah, and so there's this boarding school. It eventually closes. And then um, some of the alumni as adults start talking to therapists, which I think was like a big, because the therapists are listening to them talk and saying, oh, that's child abuse. Yeah. Um, and so they realize, oh, I experienced child abuse you know here's the name for it and then i think they start talking to each other and then there's sort of this like oh it wasn't just me you know people start learning about or hearing about their other you know classmates or other alumni's experiences um and so they're talking to each other they form this steering committee and they start trying to get the Christian Missionary Alliance organization to investigate abuse, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think I remembered there, you know, they had heard that at least one of their abusers was uh, teaching still. I, I don't think it was clear, but yeah, I mean, it would have had to be at a different school, but like the, the survivors heard that their teacher who abused them was was you know still teaching somewhere and they wanted uh the christian missionary alliance i think specifically to like check to see how many of these abusers were like still working with kids and they said that for a long time no one did anything they kept trying to go like higher and higher up in the organization and they were just dismissed Um, There was specifically this one guy, I think that was the vice president, who said like, oh, I can't deal with this 
because I'm really busy planning for a big council. Yeah. I'm really busy planning for this big council. There's going to be a bunch of people here. And then, so they say, okay, we'll go. So they go to the council. I don't think they actually go inside because I don't think they were invited, but they stand outside the building where they're having their sessions and they have a silent prayer vigil and they pass out flyers, I believe, to everyone attending. And it seems like they're still ignored. Uh, No one really pays attention to them except for one woman who read their flyer and supported them and just stood next to them. Like no one else would even, I see, I think, pay any attention to them. Um, And that woman, she had a a relative who experienced abuse from a pastor. Yeah. So, yeah. She could empathize, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like they just kept going. You know, they just kept reaching out to people high up in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And finally, they got, you know, people to give their testimony, right? To give their first person accounts. Um, they wanted to get at least 10 to 20 people and they, and they eventually got 80 people who formally gave a report to this independent commission of inquiry. Um, Before that inquiry, mm-hmm. I think the only way that they were able to get CM, CN. NA to respond in any way was to shame them by featuring them in Christianity Today. So getting that's media right. coverage. Yes, that's um, what it was. And until the vigil, until that council, I believe they were they had been trying to contact CNNA for 10 years. Mm. I wrote that down. So it was an extremely long process, uh, extremely long period where CNNA was completely ignoring, not acknowledging them or giving them like um, excuses for why they were not responding. Um, So it was kind of that pivotal moment of getting media attention. Yes, you're right. That's what they went. Yeah. They said it was, they, they, they went to the media and then, and then CNMA finally responded. They do the investigation and they had a retreat for alumni of Mamu and parents and spouses and denominational leaders. And I believe at that retreat, uh, the CNMA leadership gave an official apology. And then after that, I think they had a closed meeting where the steering committee gave suggestions for policy changes um, for missionaries. Um, And then I believe they never heard back if uh, they actually implemented the suggested policies. And Mm. it seems like that's the last thing that really happened uh, with CMMA. We looked on their website. We couldn't find any information, you know, about the stories of abuse on their current website. Um, But the steering committee then evolved into uh, MK Safety Net and have gone on to help other alumni at other Christian schools, including CAJ, to investigate cases of abuse. 
So the documentary kind of jumps a little bit back and forth. I think you start out with some stories. Um, there's some, you know, graphic mentions of abuse. There's discussion of suicidal thoughts because um, you're hearing from the survivors as adults and they're talking about not just what happened then, but how they're impacted now. And then you kind of hear about, you know, the different steps that they took. You also hear from parents and it was interesting. Mm. There was a few, you know, kind of different, uh, different responses from the parents. Um, some, I think were a little defensive. That's the vibe that I got. Like I did nothing wrong and others. Uh, like were, I didn't know there was no, right. I didn't know. know. Right. Um, and, and then I think others were more just like focused on, wow. Okay. The, my children were really harmed by this. Let's talk about that. Like they seem more focused on like really acknowledging the harm. And it kind of seemed like some of the parents were like, just uh worried about oh am i being blamed for this at least that's the impression i got mm-hmm. going back to just your summary i think it's important to uh, share about the results of the inquiry that you mentioned this earlier but there was really no um consequences for the abusers it was they put them on church trial like it was basically yeah. like a inter you know internal yeah trial sort of thing which i mean i guess that's based on biblical some model of um, i forget where but i think there's some you know in paul's letters or something it's like oh you should this is how you take it up with the leaders of the church you know um so it was there was no legal charges whatsoever and it was basically on the wrist I don't know that the steering committee were trying to get legal charges. I think some of them wanted it, but I don't know if if as a group, that's what they were going for. Yeah. And then also it's, it's, I think impossible for, uh, for the, for legal charges because all of this was happening outside of the States. That's Uh, true. And then a long time ago, it was like outside the statutes of limitations as well, which is also why, missionary abuse cases it's so difficult to deal with because it's outside the jurisdiction of the um home countries of a lot of these people which makes it yeah. even more sneaky yeah um, but but it was interesting because compared to caj it was more like recent like you know the abusers were still alive um mm-hmm. and the the survivors of abuse themselves were still alive as opposed to, you know, it's been longer, I think, but, um, but yeah, I just had some notes. Okay. So there were eight people accused of abuse and that were sort of put on these, like, well, that were mentioned in the report, I think, but some of the accused had no ongoing relationship with CNMA. So they didn't have like jurisdiction to do these church trials. Um, there were three formal hearings out of that eight. And then out of that eight, two were formally disciplined. 
which means their credentials were removed and uh, CMNA told whatever church they were at not to let them work with children or have positions of authority. Uh, there is one person who was accused of abuse, but only one person was able to give a firsthand story. Um, she had heard from others that they were also abused by him, but they, they did not want to, you know, officially make their report. And so they, so, uh, they said, well, it's not enough evidence. And so as of the time of the documentary, he was still, uh, employed by CNMA. Uh, oh, and this was the guy who he had threatened to kill his victims if they spoke up, um, which is probably why some people didn't speak up. Um, but so she told her story. She said all this happened and they said that's ah, not enough evidence. And he was still working for them yeah, as of the time of the documentary. Yeah. 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 So it was definitely, yeah, a little different from CAJ with the time period for sure. Mm-hmm. And also with CAJ, there's all of the there's the school plus the six mission organizations. Um, they're all like sort of their own thing. But with this case, it was just this Christian and Mission Alliance organization. Yeah, we kind of we didn't do it all at once. We've kind of jumped around. Mm. But that kind of covers the documentary. It's not super long. Yeah, it's broken up into 10 parts on YouTube and each clip is less than 10 minutes. I yeah. would say it's like eight minutes, um, yeah. which it's kind of good that it's broken up because it is heavy. So if you want to take a break in between, you can. Yeah, I think it would be good for folks to watch it if if you're up to it. Yeah, there is a uh, discussion of, of, you know, suicidal thoughts. There's discussion of all kind, all forms of child abuse. but. It was really, I think for me, it was just so powerful to hear the survivors themselves as adults, you know, just talking about their story, like firsthand. I think that was the most powerful thing for me, be just that's so rare to hear someone who's a survivor of abuse, who's like now able to like fully talk about it openly. Yeah. And there's also just a lot on the MK safety net website, uh, all different kinds of MKs and all different kinds of things to read there. So I would definitely encourage anyone who's interested to do some further reading. I think we'll probably post some websites and stuff that we used. Okay. So yeah, on the MK safety net website, there is a lot of resources um, they also have a Facebook page or Facebook group. So if you're interested in diving deeper, a lot of the, actually the you know founding members of the NK Safety Net are part of that group. So if you, you know, you want to connect, um, you can look into joining that group. Mm. So we wanted to talk a little bit about just, I guess, even larger cultural context. I mean, we were talking about the legacy of Christian schools 
obviously the Native American boarding schools are a huge part of history, specifically, you know, evangelical, not just evangelical, but includes evangelical Christian schools that is still not really talked about. I mean, we didn't learn about it growing up, but now I would consider it like a very important part of our history. Like that was, that was us that did that, you know, and that I'm sure somehow that I think that affects our culture, you know, even when we don't realize it, like there's a similar stem (laughs) to use another metaphor, right? We're one tree branch, but it's the same tree, you know, that also there's another branch that has the native American boarding schools. And so even though that's a very different context, we still have that connection and Canada as well. Right. Yeah. Well, I know Australia had different, a little bit of a different history with that, but yeah, very much part of like North American Christian history. We talked about just in general, the, the low value of children. Maybe some of that was a product of the time. And maybe some of that also is still part of, you know, sort of a missionary culture today where the emphasis is not on what's best for the children, right? The emphasis is what's best for the ministry. Do you think that's that's still a part of missionary culture today? A lot has changed, thankfully. And mm-hmm. it's thanks to these survivors of abuse who've spoken out that many of these missions organizations have taken a look at their child protection policies or the lack thereof, you know? Mm-hmm. It's because people have come out and shared about the horrible experiences that they had as kids as MKs, that Mm -hmm. there has been a cultural shift amongst these organizations. Also, you know, Me Too movement has influenced it too, of just talking about abuse more openly. And so now as institutions, a lot of these missions organizations have policies in place to protect kids, but kids are still vulnerable, I think. With like missionaries, where the emphasis is not on what can I do so that my kid can have a better life? The emphasis is like on the career and then for the, the gospel, the ministry. Not, yeah. Right. But I mean, it yeah. basically is a career, you know, yeah, yeah, like they were yeah. in the documentary, they were saying like, all oh, these people are like sacrificing their careers. It's like, no, being a minister, being a missionary is a career and it can give you opportunities that you would not have if you were not a missionary. Especially now, maybe for women. You know, during that time when there's more limitations on interesting interesting point yeah and i'm sure that like in different contexts it's different but i mean i have seen missionaries live like you know probably better lives than they could if they were not missionaries i mean there's like missionaries who had like maids and stuff like they wouldn't have a maid if they were in america um but yeah, so what I, what I was saying was like, I think it still is true 
that for missionaries, their focus is not like what is best for my children. In a way, though, I think there could be this idea of, oh, we need to leave like secular America, like take, you know, I mean, people who become missionaries, they're probably, you know, Mm. already kind of like homeschooler family types who are wary of Mm. secular culture, right? So it's almost like, oh, we'll go to this rural land where we will kind of live this bubble or like, yeah, I'll protect my child from the bad influences. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Tied in with American politics too. Yeah. Like scared of critical race theory. They're like, oh, we'll just (laughs) leave this conversation entirely and go to this foreign place where we can just focus on like this pure way of life of bringing god's gospel to the to the unreached and it did seem like when we were kids i would hear about like you know other mks they would go to north america for like their furlough year and they would be like exposed because they would go to public school you know and they would come back and talk about how like all of the sinful <laughs> classmates they had at public school yeah, yeah. so that was Probably definitely a thing experiences where, with alcohol or yeah yeah it was like i'm protecting my kid by sending them to this international christian school kind of thing i guess yeah um, this is, it makes me think also we did a, a mini survey on our insta stories like do you do you regret I, I I did a little mini poll. Like, do you regret that your parents chose to become missionaries? I think mm-hmm. is the question. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who were happy that they grew up as missionary kids. You know, like one person said, like, if my parents hadn't, like, I would have just had like a basic white girl grow like a childhood. <laughs> like, kind of like like my life was enriched or it's like more interesting. But I don't know if that's a motivation of the parent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe it could be like, oh, want to enrich, you know, like, oh, let's have some exciting cross-cultural experience sort of thing. I guess. Um, I just never that, encountered that. That is not that. the motivation. Yeah, yeah. Like when I think of talking with missionaries about their kids, like that never came up of like, I want my kid to have like a more international experience. That would not be the primary motivation. Yeah. While I was on YouTube watching this, there would be these videos, you know, like the suggested videos coming up. And there were so many missionary family videos, vlogs. Oh, really? Like support raising videos that popped up. And like the parents had the kids be the like main uh, focus of the, mm. these videos so it'd be like hi my name's brady yeah hi, my name's katie and we live in papua new guinea or something yeah. and it, you know it's like all completely scripted um yeah they're like talking about all the cool things that they get to do living in yeah, it was good PNG. interesting was like, oh, like, kind of like cutesy thing but so like cringe at the same time where it's like don't don't rope your kids into this like this i'm is so glad that we were not kids in the time of youtube (laughs) oh my god yeah i feel sad for them like 
yeah, for us, probably the, the extent or the worst of it was having, you know, our prayer letter, prayer card put on refrigerators. Right. Uh, all these supporting church members. Around right. The, yeah. Know, we just had to get our pictures taken. I think that was mostly it. And, and go and on furlough, go to church. Yeah. We had to visit the church and like, yeah, that's true. We did sing songs in the church and like basically stand up and smile as people looked at you. (laughs) But we, we did not have to do these YouTube videos. (laughs) Yeah. My God. I'm like, Oh, just don't your kids did not agree to this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're not old enough to give consent. Um, You should take a look if you want to have some. uh, I don't know if I can. Yeah, I mean, and it's especially terrible because it's these like these are support raising videos, right? You know, it's like right. all trying to get these church people, American church people, to open up their wallets and give, and you're using kids to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were also wondering about like the process of being approved to be a missionary like obviously there's specific requirements that you need to be a missionary but I was wondering like how often it is that someone is like okay I want to be a missionary and like I check off all the required boxes but then the mission organization says like no you don't have you know these certain skills or whatever that we need because in the documentary they were saying that you know at this time people were really really excited to go out and evangelize to the like unevangelized and so they would get so pumped up to go out and be missionaries in Africa and then they would be told like actually you know you didn't do well enough in language school or you don't have the people skills so instead of evangelizing you have to work at the school and that was one of the causes basically of the abuse was that the missionaries were taking out their frustration on the kids. Like they didn't want to be there. They didn't want to be working at the school. Um, But they basically had to, because they weren't allowed to do the evangelizing work. Yeah, and I was just like wondering at that time or even now how often it is that someone is like applying to be a missionary and then not, they don't get the job. Mm, Like turned away completely from the mission field or like turned away from certain positions within? No, like turned away completely because I think it's a pretty common thing for someone to be like, like in, you know, in a church or anything like that to be like, oh, I want to help out. And then they say like, well, you know, maybe you're like a young woman and they're like, well, we'll put you in the nursery. Right. Or like mm-hmm. you can do this. Like, you know, they'll find some job for you if you want to help out, even if it's not the job you would have chosen. Mm-hmm. But I wonder how often it is where they just say like outright, like, no, you can't be a missionary with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For for like personal, not like, oh, you need to be married or you need to have a college degree, but like you don't have these, you know, what it takes to be a missionary. 
Yeah. And I mean, there's so many mission organizations and each one of them has different culture and some value higher education more so than others. Like I know some missions organizations will require some type of degree, like ministry related degree before you actually go into the field. Mm. Um, So that weeds out people just based on like commitment levels Mm. uh, and like competency. But then again, you know, there are a lot that have low bars probably. And who knows what type of screening happens for, you know, be, be the type of screening beyond just a letter of recommendation from your local pastor. Um, yeah. I wonder about YWAM because YWAM, you have to do one year of DTS and then you're given, like you could be given a lot of responsibility. Hmm. I wonder how often someone tries to like, you know, they do DTS and then they want to do something else with YWAM. Cause I feel like probably YWAM would just be like, uh, Oh, you can't do that, but you can do this instead. But I wonder how often they'd be like, nah, you can't do anything with us at all. Mm. Cause I feel like a lot of the time they're like really desperate for people. Yeah. But maybe, maybe it depends on the time period. Like, you know, I'm sure in the sixties, it was like a huge thing to be a missionary. Yeah. Versus I feel like today it's probably harder and harder to find missionaries. Yeah. Yeah. Especially long-term. Yeah. And hopefully the standards don't drop because of that, you know? Right. Yeah. Hopefully they keep some type of standard. I mean, not that I want anyone to be a missionary today. Yeah. Yeah. But at least we don't want like, you know, abusers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's like that's the that's 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 a very low ask yeah i mean it's also interesting to think about requirements for working at caj like i'm not Mm. even thinking about abuse yeah i'm just thinking about like in general and like they said that was one of the other i guess factors that made it worse at mamu was you know these were not people who were trained to work with children yeah. You know, they didn't understand like how to educate a child or like child development. Uh, or yeah. Anything. Child development. Yeah. Nothing at all about that. Um, I'm sure CAJ requires. Uh, yeah, I know they require like college degree and stuff. Like, I'm just curious. What are the like standards for being a teacher versus like maybe in uh public school in America. I know in America, um, you have to do a lot of professional development. You have to do like a certain number of hours per year. I'm Mm. curious if it's similar. I would imagine it is. I'm assuming it is similar for CAJ that they have to do a certain amount of professional development per year. I'm just wondering. And like people at CAJ, they're going there to teach at CAJ. So it's super different than Mamu where they were going to West Africa to be missionaries. And then they get told like, actually, you can't do that. You have to work at the school instead. Yeah. Um, You need a, for CAJ currently, you need a bachelor's degree minimum and a A. CSI or government teacher certification. 
Um, and then above that, though, just the list before that, you, the top requirement is you must be a born again Christian who models a Christ like lifestyle. Hmm. How do you how do you measure a Christ like lifestyle? Don't have sex. Have <laughs> I think that's basically it. Have Don't have sex outside person. of marriage. Yeah. And maybe that's about it. I don't no, know what no, else they would be checking probably. for. Don't drink. Don't, don't drink alcohol, first. maybe. We were thinking about the risk factors for institutions um, in terms of abuse. And one of the things was the um, discouragement of complaining or like negative mm-hmm. talk. And I mean, for Mamu, it was like the, like the kids were not the kids allowed were- to ever express anything negative. The parents yeah. were also very much discouraged. Like they were not allowed or they were like kind of like scolded if they like expressed to their kids like, oh, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to yeah. have to go to yeah. school because it had to be stoic. Right. You it's for the good of everyone or whatever. Yeah. And I would imagine also like the teachers were also not really allowed to express dissatisfaction with their job because it's like, well, this job is really important because you need to be here so that the, the kids' parents can evangelize. Save the heathens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, that was part of the, (laughs) I don't know the terms for petri dishes but that was one of the cultures in the petri dish that yeah developed abuse yeah and thinking about that like the connection with toxic positivity that is Mm -hmm. really prevalent in christianity even today and how that makes it difficult for people to talk about abuse um, especially when it's such a tight knit community, um, like it is in the case with missionary communities where, you know, all these adults around you as a kid, you call them aunt something, uncle something, um, cause you're all supposed to be kind of this one missionary family. So to say something negative about one of those members is a really scary thing to do. Yeah. And I think there's such a clear divide between like, there's the Christians and then there's the like heathens. And of course you can like criticize the sin of the non-believers, but if someone's a believer, you can't really criticize them. I think. Yeah. It makes me think also of the response of CNMA to the to the abuse. There was like some weird thing where it's like, oh, this will bring shame to God. Yeah, if it's brought to light. Yeah, um, this is gonna like hurt the cause of God. <laughs> yeah, it's just just so messed up. I can't. I can't understand that 
I mean, I, I can understand the logic yeah. <laughs> from that worldview, but it's just, ugh. Yeah. And I think there's some Christian cultures where there is more criticizing. I guess we also had a lot of criticism because it would be like how bad the sinful people are. But you wouldn't criticize Christians. Does that make sense? We we had a lot of criticism. Yeah, what? would like wouldn't you say like we heard criticism of hmm. non-Christians. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't hear really a lot of criticism of Christians. Yeah. Um other other bacteria cultures in the petri dish one thing that was mentioned i think a lot by the survivors was just like the physical isolation like there was literally nowhere they could go yeah because they're in a rural area and it's not their country there was nothing that you could do. Like you couldn't run away because there's nowhere that you could run to. Yeah. And if your parents are going to be missionaries, this is what you do. That was, that was the only option. Yeah. They're extremely vulnerable. Right. Yeah. So there's like some things like toxic positivity. That's just like a general thing that's everywhere and is damaging on all different levels. But like what made it so dangerous was um, like physical isolation. There wasn't anywhere they could go. And I imagine maybe it was something similar for um, the CAJ survivors who lived in the dorm, you know, at CAJ. Maybe they didn't really have anywhere that they could go, especially for those who whose parents lived really far away. Mm. I don't think that there was anything really <clears throat> unique about the abusers in, I don't think in a different situation, they would have done these things. I don't think they were born with mental problems that I'm just saying in my personal opinion, I think it was just like these conditions caused, you know, frustration I think that they de- these missionaries definitely had a sense of entitlement, right? So there's this culture where it's very authoritarian, very strict control. There's this idea that you are a leader, like you know better than other people how to live your life, right? Because that's what a missionary does is tell people how to be like them. And mad that they couldn't be doing what they wanted to do. And then they just have very vulnerable children that they have power over. They emphasize how the children, I mean, they, they were essentially emotionally neglected. And so it was really easy to control them emotionally. 
it was really easy to control them physically. Like they just had, like they could do literally whatever they wanted to them and get away with it. You know, they were openly beating them all the time. So there was no concern of like, I can't show any bruises. Like it was common for the children to be just like bleeding in public from like brutal beatings. Yeah. And the fact that the school nurse who is the position of taking care, you know, being the actual like physical caretaker of the needs of the school, she was one of the worst abusers. Like yeah, really she they had access to Novocaine on. and she chose not to use Novocaine. Like, yeah, yeah, I think it was just like it like created these conditions. And yeah, I, I, I can't really I don't want to like make any assumptions, but I just feel like a lot of times we have this idea that like, ah, oh, these people are so messed up. Right. You know, there's something wrong with their head. And I'm I'm sure there are people who are, you know, psychopaths or sociopaths or whatever. But I think a lot of the time it's just these these Petri dishes like you just create these conditions and this is what breeds. And to use Mm. a biblical reference. Right. Like you can tell a tree by its fruit, you know, Mm. and I think that there are parts of like evangelical white Christian culture that very often breed abuse, you know, Mm. patriarchal, Mm. uh, you know, this idea of like power and control and authority, right? It's not democratic. It's very authoritarian. Uh, These ideas of like good and evil um, that are not nuanced and you have to like discipline you know, to get rid of the evil. I think there's a a lot of parts of just like this Christian culture that it's like, you know, you can have the mold (laughs) spores (laughs) and then if you have the other environmental conditions, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to grow. Yeah. There was one thing I wrote down about healing a couple different people talked about healing. One of the parents said that they hoped that by apologizing to their child, that, you know, that would be able to allow their child to heal. Um, which I thought was interesting. And multiple survivors talked about how the official apology was just not very satisfying you or even you know a parent apologizing to them it's like well you can't just hug, give us a hug and you know we have this moment and now it's all good they said you know i have to live with it and they have to live with it right i think they were talking yeah. about specifically their parents they have to live with knowing that they allowed this to happen to their kid um, or the mission organization, right? The people in the mission, they have to live with knowing that they, their mission, right, allowed this to happen. Um, but one of the survivors said, as a child, I didn't have a voice and said, now that they are telling the truth, that is healing for them. Just the fact that they can, now they can tell their truth that's where the healing comes from. And I thought that was just a, you know, interesting piece of wisdom. It's not about 
the apology necessarily. It, you know, it's not about, uh, you know, expectation. It's just this ability to tell the truth out loud. Mm. That's healing. Yeah. It's not dependent on some external response. It's mm-hmm. just the act of talking. Mm-hmm. And that's what reminded me. I think it was maybe Debbie who said this, that, you know, asking the mission organizations and the school to do these things, it's not for the sake of the survivors to heal. It's for the sake of the organizations to heal. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, I'm sure all different survivors have their different, you know, perspectives on what they want, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the apology of CNMA president, at least the clip that was included in the documentary was such a non-apology. It was a sort of thing of like abuse happened to these people. Well, it's just very official. Yeah. There were a couple of clips with him and he was just such a politician. It seemed yeah. like there was know. the vice president and the vice and the president. And they were okay. Both like okay. That. Yeah. Maybe I just thought they were the same guy. They're both I mean, wearing they're suits. Both, they're, they're both, both white, white men wearing their... suits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was just one thing I was just wondering is like, where can we find an example of an institution doing it right? I guess just as a pattern of, that's more reparative rather than just sorry. And then that's done. Right, just like yeah. Punishing the perpetrator and locking them up, you know, like, yeah. What does that do? Yeah. Yeah. I think having like curriculum of like, here's some lesson plans and materials you can use. And like, let's make sure that at this grade level, this grade level that, you know, you cover what happened. Hmm. That seems very helpful to me. Mm, yeah. I mean, I was just skimming through some of the reviews of this documentary, and there's some people from different Bible colleges and oh, wow. seminaries who are saying, like, oh, this should be required. Oh, okay. Viewing. It was not required. <laughs> oh, yeah. That yeah, would be no, amazing if it was amazing. at like a Bible yeah, required school. viewing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. Yeah, for prospective missionaries or people going into ministry to watch this. But I mean, uh, for also for children in schools, like yeah. I would, I would not recommend a child watch this documentary. Yeah, but maybe a high schooler. But yeah, yeah, you can find age appropriate ways to teach kids. Hey, this is a thing that has happened in schools yeah um and um you know if you if you hear something um you know you should tell someone and you know it's not shameful you know just like something like that and that the sort of an abuse uh happens more likely from someone you know rather than a stranger which is yeah counter to what we were taught as kids where it's yeah. like oh some stranger lurking in the bushes or something yeah and just like but emphasizing no. over and over it's not your fault yeah. like there's stuff that you can teach kids from a very young age yeah bodily autonomy yeah consent <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. um yeah
Well, I think this was helpful just to continue processing what we have learned about what happened at CAJ and also just continue processing just like our childhoods, not, you know, not specific to abuse, but just kind of growing up in this culture where you can't talk about certain things, right? You're not allowed to talk about certain things. And uh, we did learn, you know, some toxic ideologies that harmed us. Um, And I don't know, it's just helpful to be able to talk about things. Yeah. I think like you're saying, it is powerful to hear survivors share their stories and Mm. listening and seeing these adults who are in their forties, maybe fifties share and, you know, choking up talking about what happened to them as a six year old kid, you know, it's Mm. powerful. It shows like how, how significant childhood events are, you know, like, yeah, there's always that six year old inside of us. Um, Yeah. Always, even though we grow as into adults, you know, Mm -hmm. and reminded of that. Yeah, as as far as the documentary, like the production, like the the production value is pretty low. You know, it's not a fancy, yeah, uh, slick one, but I think it is with it's worth watching. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, just learning these stories and the work that these people have been doing. Um, and as I mentioned, like there are a lot of institutional changes amongst missionary schools and missions organizations and it's really thanks to people like these who have spoken out about what happened to them mm-hmm. so yeah we we i'm grateful for the for these people yeah we have benefited from their efforts yeah mm-hmm. the him the hymns playing over it was creepy yes like oh my god it was like intentional Um, oh absolutely yeah especially no i mean it was basically the whole time they're playing these like classic christian hymns and uh, one of the survivors talks about how like he just cannot listen to that music anymore yeah it's triggering for him because that was like the background music to his abuse yeah and and like I was, you know, I didn't even have anything that bad happen to me, but I still feel that like I hate listening to certain songs. Hmm. Um, I could definitely understand that, but it's yeah, it was so creepy, and he explained really well how traumatizing it was to be abused as you were singing songs about Jesus loves the little children. By the way, the uh, subtitle of this documentary is The Ultimate Sacrifice. It's All God's yeah. Children, The Ultimate Sacrifice. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, that's core to Christianity. God sacrificing his son, Jesus. Yeah. Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> that's not good for a parent to sacrifice their child. Like it was so normal for us growing up, but it's like, if you think about it now for a father to send their son to be killed, that's, that's a violent religion. Please stay away from that. That's a warning sign. If a parent is killing their child, that is not 
a good thing. All the layers of weird brainwashing to unpack. Yep. That we've accepted as good and beautiful. Yeah. Honorable and a model for how we should live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's end by emphasizing that, you know, all humans should have like safe and happy lives. Consent is good. People should have a say over their bodies and their lives. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Cardell with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com, and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who'd like to share their story, whether it's about the CAJ experience, growing up international, or radical healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at radicalhealingpod at gmail.com.